0: Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find that they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, if you've been paying attention to federal politics over the past decade, you've noticed just how much presidents can do without needing Congress to pass laws. They've been given lots of discretion in how they want to administer the law. uh, executive orders can make a lot of policy changes without needing Congress, enforcement decisions can allow for even more, and today we're going to cover the federal rulemaking process. And to talk about that, I'll be speaking with Jennifer Butler, Senior Policy Advisor at the State Policy Network. She's worked to get a rule attached to Medicaid dollars to prohibit them from being directed to third parties. Now, that sounds kind of strange, so let's dig in. Jennifer, welcome.
1: Thank you. Appreciate being here.
0: Uh, what was the problem you were trying to solve with that federal rule?
1: yeah well uh, sit back it's a bit complicated so we'll <laughs> walk through it and I think it's probably best to talk about the program and, and more importantly the people it impacts mm-hmm. um, so the program you mentioned Medicaid specifically it's the home and community-based services and it's been around since the early 1980s um, and it's a great program it provides opportunities for Medicaid beneficiaries to receive services in their own home instead of being in an institution or nur- or nursing home or some other isolated setting mm-hmm. um, and these programs serve a variety of targeted populations, uh, people with, uh, and they're all adults, people with intellectual or developmental disabilities, folks with physical disabilities and mental illnesses. Um, Now, the program itself, how it was built out, it's supposed to function as a reimbursement program. Uh, So home care providers, they are hired by a client. Um, And many times they're friends and family members, right, taking care Mm -hmm. of a loved one and they receive a small stipend from Medicaid for that care. Trust me, they're, they're not getting rich from this. Um, These funds come from the federal government. They're dispersed to the states. And then by statute, the the states are supposed to directly give the stipends to the provider of the service for the clients. And there are hundreds and thousands of these Medicaid compensated home care providers around the country. Well, labor unions, primarily the service employees, international unions, started looking at this arrangement and they saw the sheer amount of money that was involved. Right. Coming from the federal government to the states and then the providers. And what they attempt to do was capture some of that Medicaid money into their own coffers. Uh, so they began to persuade uh, political allies to designate these home care providers. Remember, these are independent, basically independent contractors as public employees, basically state employees. And here's the justification, right? And this was before two very significant Supreme Court decisions, which I'm sure you've talked about or you Google them, um, Harris and Janice. Uh, Government employees before these decisions were required to pay a fee to unions, even if they didn't want to officially join. So basically, these unions and aligned state leaders decided if they can take compulsory fees from public employees You know what? Why not do that with anybody that receives public money? And unfortunately, right, the first group targeted were these independent home care providers. Mm -hmm. Um, So let me give you one example. And in fact, it's a family that 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 that's out of Michigan that Mackinac um, worked with and really Mm -hmm. highlighted their story. And I think it just it's a great example of just the unfairness of this practice. Uh, Robert and Patricia Hayes, right? You, you guys have worked with them, they're fantastic. Robert's a retired Detroit police officer. Um, so he was a union member, right? He's not anti-union, but they take care of their two adult children that have cerebral palsy. So they're getting this modest stipend check from Medicaid um, to help cover their in-home care, the in-home care they provide. But in 2005, uh, this family found out they were forced, unknowingly forced to be a SEIU member. Um, And there's a great, great quote that Robert has about the injustice of the situation. He says, you know, we're not professional home care workers. We're just parents taking care of our kids. Um, So this was happening in other states, right? Not just Michigan, Illinois, Washington, California. These are blue states with union allied uh, governors. Um, But the issue came to a forefront in 2014 in Harris v. Quinn, the Supreme Court case, where Pam Harris, who is mother and caretaker of Josh Harris, she sued Illinois Governor Pat Quinn, basically pushing back on this assumption, right, that she's a government employee, and the court agreed with her. So here's the rub, and we're going to come to the end of this. <laughs> it's a very long window. No, this is
0: important. It's worth covering because, I mean, complex issues need comp- uh, can use complex solutions, and we're going to get into this.
1: Excellent. So the unions are crafty, right? And there's so much money at the table. They went back to the drawing board and they came up with a different way to trap these care providers. So in some states, care providers were automatically opted in, but they had to opt out, right? Kind of as a patina of choice. Um, Others have to sit through a mandated union sales pitch. We have seen union membership cards forged, uh, extreme pressure on these care providers to join and here's the thing once they join it's it's like the firm they can't get out Um, the unions make these rules on how to opt out and many times it's a small window right on the one-year anniversary of your join date but these folks don't even know they're they're a member um, because the states are diverting money away from their stipend checks right and this amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars that's basically free money for unions since they provide no discernible services for these care providers. And the state government, right, this is the rub, serves as their finance department collecting dues money from them. So, yes, it's complicated. But, you know, as you realize how much scheming the unions have done to take advantage of a program and, and, and more importantly, the people, right, The people that are helping the most vulnerable, you quickly realize that this isn't a justice and it has to be fixed.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting point, too, because Medicaid is such a huge program uh, that these dollar flows that go in um, uh, for these uh, families to take care of their children or for just home health care provision, like it's a big revenue stream. And these unions just found a way to convince uh, lawmakers in some states, not in every state, that they just deserve a chunk of that, even though they don't really represent them and they don't provide any services and there's not really much that they can do is is that the case here
1: that is the case right these are care providers in somebody else's home they have a personal relationship it's not like um you know they're going to be like the union's going to be representing these care providers in some sort of workplace dispute or they you know they're meeting at the union hall this is basically free money for not many
0: services provided Mm -hmm. so what was the federal rule that you were trying or that you worked to get through
1: yeah, so um, actually, I first have to give props to the Mackinac Center. You guys, in 2017, put together a fantastic policy briefer called How to Stop do Skim, a federal home health care and child care funding. And we didn't mention that this is also happening to child care providers that get funding through a variety of different federal programs, right? So they're doing mm-hmm. it to home care providers and child care providers. But you all laid out the path for a federal fix through the regulatory process. Um, and in 2019, after a lot of meetings and collaboration with uh, Department of Health and Human Services, they repealed an, what we consider an unlawful reg that was promulgated during the Obama administration that gave states cover to siphon away money from care providers. Um, unfortunately, it got challenged in front of a San Francisco judge. And now that there's a new administration here, right, as you mentioned, presidents mm-hmm. matter, um, they're in the process of reversing that fix through the regulatory rulemaking process.
0: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let's dig in on this rulemaking process, because I think it's important. And even if listeners um, aren't paying or aren't motivated by this, uh, this unionized dues skimming operation. uh, I mean, it's an important thing to, to go through. How does the rulemaking process work?
1: Sure. Um, So regulations are rules, right? They're the primary vehicle with, with which federal agencies can implement specific laws and achieve their objectives. And there are so many federal agencies impacting every facet of our life Uh, but here's the good news right they can't implement these rules at a drop of a hat fortunately Mm -hmm. they have to follow something called the administrative procedures act and it outlines a very specific process that agencies have to follow when writing regulations you know there's different types of rulemaking processes and different types of rules but basically Mm -hmm. an agency has to build up a case for the change Um, there's opportunities for impacted industry and public comment public to submit comments and the, the government has to build up something called an administrative record to support these new regulations, right? If um, the procedures okay. are followed or if the record does not support the new regulation, um, that this can be brought up in front of court. It can be tossed in front of a judge, possibly thrown out, and the agency has to start from scratch.
0: Okay. So who commented on your rule?
1: Oh, oh, that was a lot of fun back in 2019. <laughs> so, you know, as as you know, we work with a network of policy organizations around the country, folks like Mackinac, there's groups um, in every single state. Um, That have been working on this. And as I mentioned, we quickly found out at the start of this, this wasn't just happening in Michigan, it was happening in other states. And that's because we have a network of these state policy organizations um, that monitor and work on these sorts of things. So, of course, it was the network of state groups um, that really believe in the ability for workers to to choose whether they want to join a union or not. There were folks in the home care providing business that had been trapped. There were mothers and parents and people that I had the privilege of going to Washington, D.C., people that take care of their adult children that are on this program and meet with legislators. They commented on it. Um, and at the end of the day, I am just was so proud of the fact that we had the most number of individual comments submitted for this rule, quality comments. Of course, the unions kind of had their rubber stamp, grassroots, you know, kind of Everybody send the same you know, email um, that in, the, in the record. But when it came to building up a quality administrative record to show, one, how harmful this regulation is or this practice is, and two, that it's unlawful, um, we were able to do it very successfully.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, let's at least talk about the union's defense on this one. I mean, give the, the best case that they can make for, um, for why they should uh, be able to collect some of these Medicaid dollars
1: yeah, I appreciate you asking that. I think one, they would say they give people choice that that it is they have the ability to opt out. Most of the time they have the ability to quote unquote opt in. I think that would be one of their defenses. I would also say that they they would claim that they provide services. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many times they are going up to the state capitol, maybe lobbying on the on the behalf of this particular worker group. Um, Mm -hmm. They would also say they probably provide some training, too, um, for these care providers. Um, I would argue about the quality and and sometimes the need for the training. But I think that's the basic argument that they would that they would Mm -hmm. give. They would also say, too, that states have the right to choose. Um, What to do with these funds? Um, But you know, in our defense, we would say it's it's a federal program, so therefore, federal law should be followed.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've got conflicting claims. Uh, People are commenting on these rules. Someone is deciding uh, about which uh, uh, which way to go. Who is making that decision, and what are they trying to balance?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So it's the it's kind of the people behind the curtain, right? (laughs) Submit comments, Uh, and it's a group of professionals. These these are issue. These are career. Um, you know, issue experts in each of the agencies, and of course, you do have folks that are appointed and um, political appointees running these agencies. So it's a combination mm. of both issue ex- experts and folks that have been, you know, appointed by the by the Biden administration to make sure they're following their their particular policy priorities. Um, but what they're weighing out is, you know, is, is a slew of different things. They look at a lot of different things: the impact to mm. industry, the cost of the regulation, both private sector and public sector, um, in cases where the regulation impacts states, they need to factor in the role of the states and if this is going to cause an unfunded mandate. Um, and of course, they're going to look to see if the regulation or rule is compliant with other related statutes. So um, lots of information and things that they're they're weighing out. But to be honest, you know, if an, if an agency or an administration is, is pushing a priority for them at the end of the day, they probably are going to get that particular priority over the home. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's just, we, we saw it in the previous administration. We saw it, and you know, we're seeing in this administration at the beginning of a new presidential administration, uh, the president issues out a series of executive orders, and that sets out the goals of that particular administration. The agencies are then tasked to go back into their, you know, into their departments and figure out what they can possibly do to contribute to those goals, what sort of rule changing they can make. Maybe there's grants and grant guidance they can change Mm -hmm. to further those. So really it's, you know, it's the big machine and the machine's being pointed in certain directions. So, you know, they, they, they've got a task to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. But then, I mean, how, like, why set up a process if it just is the president who matters and the appointees that he, uh, that he makes?
1: Yeah. You know, the, I do think that is the one benefit that I keep reminding folks about the regulatory process is that it is a process. Mm-hmm. They have to follow these rules. They have to make sure there's a period for public comment. Uh, and that period can range from 30 to 100 days, depending on the complexity and interest in the proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to make sure that the, that the comments submitted support their particular record. You know, if not uh, we have another branch of government, right? The court mm. system, the judicial branch. So, you know, there's ways then to go if, if the APA, Administrative Procedures Act, was not followed or the administrative record does not support the final rule, then there is the ability to sue the agency and the regulation being be overturned for being um, arbitrary and capricious. Um, and so, you know what, I, I do believe that this process makes sure that the public participation is, is guaranteed.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, to, to this point, yeah. uh, how can you like if if the president really matters and their appointees and the, and the last election really matters in this rulemaking process? How can people outside be effective in trying to accomplish what they want, regardless of you know what political party they're in? Like how 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 do you change how, how do you change things in the administrative uh in, in administrative rules? Uh, how do you be effective in it?
1: yeah you know well there's definitely a barrier to entry in any sort of process that that you engage in and one of them is just knowing what is happening um and so that is definitely very difficult right for for your john q public to engage in um and you know that that's why at least from it from a network standpoint right you have groups that work together and you're part of uh state policy network because we're monitoring what is happening Uh, At the federal level, Um, I think folks that probably listen to your podcast are probably monitoring what what you all are publishing um, through your updates on both at the state and the federal level. And remember, too, the same process happens on the state level. There's state regulations and this sort of process that happened with state agencies. They can find out what's happening right through Mackinac, through the network of of state think tanks out there. Um, And they have the ability to comment. They have the ability to submit their, their feedback on how it would impact. Them And I actually think, you know, that is the benefit of, of this process because it's not just Washington, D.C. groups talking about things that happen mm-hmm. on the federal level. This process guarantees that an individual that is personally impacted by a potential regulation, albeit on the state or federal level, or a whole industry or a state mm-hmm. can submit not only their personal story, but in some cases being able to lay out Um, and provide economic analysis studies and get that into the record. And given the, you know, the Procedures Act, the administration and and those that run agencies and process these have to take that in consideration.
0: Mm -hmm. How much of these rules happen behind closed doors? I mean, there is an official process to to make these decisions, but it seems like if, Administrate, uh, administrators matter, uh, a lot of those decisions kind of get made outside of the official process.
1: That's also a good question. Mm-hmm. A lot do, unfortunately. Sometimes they might just be considered quote-unquote guidance memos, right? An agency head sends a letter out to a specific industry or even to uh, maybe state agencies that oversee a federal program and just mention, hey, we're, we're thinking about redoing you know, this program, you might want to think about it this way. So, you know, guidance is kind of suggested, but not necessarily gone through the official Process. We call that regulatory dark matter. You know, <laughs> all these new rules and regs and aren't officially rules and regs. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the last administration did a lot to try to bring that dark matter into light. And so they required every single agency that if they were to issue a guidance memo or an opinion letter on something, that they had to publish it. And I bring back the litigation, right? That mm-hmm. that there is a procedures act that has to be followed. So if we are seeing that agencies are moving forward with something that should be going through the official rulemaking process, something that impacts industries, something that has some sort of significant cost associated with it, something that really deserves time for and, and feedback from the public, you can litigate on that. You can call the call the administration out out on you know out on the carpet on that in front of a judge. And we've already seen several actions that the Biden administration has taken, uh, get pulled back and be told like, wait, you have to go through the official process. So there's checks and balances to this.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've, you worked through your process before you, you got the you major arguments, the opposition made theirs, the administrative uh, the administrators made a new rule. And now that we've got a different uh, administration, you're going through that same exact process and probably going to get a different result. I mean, how does that make you feel?
1: Um, I always joke around and say to be involved in the in fighting for freedom, it's job security, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that just very quickly. Uh, it's a bit of a pendulum, but it's in a pendulum worth fighting for. Um, we know that the law is on our side on this particular issue. And I'm very thankful that, you know, as I mentioned, there there are procedures that the administration has to follow. And if they don't, there's opportunities to litigate. We fully expect that we probably will have to bring um, whatever comes out of this current regulation attempt, right? They are trying to Mm -hmm. roll back those protections right now. Uh, In fact, today, the day that we're recording, uh, this podcast is the final day for public comment. Um, we fully expect that we'll have to bring this uh, back to back to courts. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, the other thing that we need to do is just like make sure the public knows about this. When you tell the stories, when you share the stories and the faces and and, and hear from the care providers, you realize that this is wrong. So, yes, there's official procedures we need to go to, but there's also the court of public opinion. Uh, And the other thing that's happening right now here in Washington, D.C., is that there is a big battle going on in Congress. You've got a debt ceiling that needs to be raised. You've got an infrastructure bill that's supposed to be bipartisan voted on. Uh, The federal government might shut down in a few days and you have a three point five trillion dollar quote-unquote reconciliation package uh, that is being discussed and in there is a lot of money for these programs that we are talking about, both the Medicaid program and also the child care program. So I do see this, even though we're going through this process, again, I'm using this as an opportunity to make sure that our federal leaders understand what is happening, that if these dollars are so precious that they want to appropriate more for it, that the skim should not happen.
0: Okay. That's really interesting because you brought up how many venues there are to argue federal policy. Like you've, you've got this important policy that you've uh, accomplished through administrative rule that might get thrown out that might not, but you can appeal directly to Congress in the budget process. You can ask, uh, uh, you can ask the courts to do something about it. Um, something we haven't mentioned, but you know, you can fight this in state, in state, uh, uh, legislatures and, and in, 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 uh, Uh, gubernatorial mansions because uh, that's also in other people who allow this. I mean, there's a lot of places to have this fight, but it's such a strange battle because it was so private as, uh, as in it was just these small rules that uh, changed that uh, delivered um, uh, cash to these unions that uh, forcibly unionized a lot, a a lot of workers. So if you don't win in the, uh, in the federal, um, in the federal uh, in this federal rule rulemaking process, uh, you've said you've got courts, you've got Congress. Where else do you think uh, you're going to have to uh, fight this battle?
1: Yeah, I, I that's that's a really good point. You mentioned the private. They purposely kept this mm-hmm. private. Right. I mean, the California, I think just last year voted to uh, unionize their child care workers, which creates opens up the door for a lot more money. Um, to be siphoned off um, yeah I think there's a variety of different ways there's you know as I mentioned before you you have several big groundbreaking Supreme Court decisions in Harris and Janice that that afforded uh, public sector employees all sorts of rights um, and I don't think we've seen the last of these mm-hmm. sort of rights being um, kind of like relayed to these particular care providers so you know there's opportunities to look at ways to continue to build upon those those uh, decisions um, specifically janice to make sure these opt-outs really are opt-outs the other ways to fight too is that we've got many groups around the country that actually show up and do a ground game talking to these care providers and making Mm -hmm. sure they understand about their rights showing up at these union mandated trainings and reminding them hey like you don't have to sign that union card. And then also too fighting the fraud aspect, right? Making sure they identify any sort of, of fraud um, for being a resource for these care providers uh, that they're fighting uh, for, for their particular rights. So, so yeah, there's different altitudes you can come in at and being able to cover all of them for such a comprehensive problem is absolutely necessary.
0: Yeah. Now let's talk about something that I think is the key to whether you're going to be successful. I mean, it's the key to how you shift the Overton window on any issue, which is uh, what's the popularity of this? I can't, Like this doesn't seem like, uh, like, it seems like it's a complicated issue. It's tough to explain. It's really important. There's a lot of cash, uh, a lot of cash here, but getting people to understand what's going on and why um, this is an abuse of public authority seems to be challenging But it sounds like you and and your network are the only people that are making that case, whereas the unions don't even seem to be defending it. They're just like, we're big, we're important. Uh, We should want this. It's good.
1: Yeah. Um, Here's the good thing you know, I went through a long description because I wanted to provide a little more information about the history, about the twists Mm -hmm. and turns, because, you know, public policy does not happen, you know, on, on day one. I mean, there's a history behind it and it takes the time to unravel it. But the minute you explain that care providers, home care providers receiving a stipend check from Medicaid, that money is being siphoned off for union dues. People get it. Um, is actually, we did tons of polling, tons of message research. And it is one of those issues when we talk about workers' choice that people get right away. Elected officials, people on the street, um, state officials. So so being able to speak about it um, and speak about it very, very forthright is has been very easy. I had the privilege... Um, to to work with representative congresswoman, excuse me, Kathy McMorris Rogers. She's out of the state of Washington and she has a son with down Down syndrome. Uh, we were looking at possibly a congressional fix to this. Um, And we had several care providers, several moms, the the, the person that they they take care of, a family member take care of, uh, join us in D.C. And the minute we would sit down with a member of Congress or one of their staff members and talk about this, just right out of the gate, people would get it. So one, it's a compelling issue. We don't have to get into the weeds. We can just talk about in the top lines. And we also have the stories, right? The faces of these folks that say, I should not be in a union, right? As Robert said, um, Robert Hayes said, I'm not a professional home care provider. I'm a parent taking care of a child. I should not be forced or even tricked to be in a union.
0: How optimistic are you that you're going to get what you want?
1: I'm very optimistic. I believe that, we are on the right side of this issue. I believe that groups like yours have put in many years of work on this issue, both fighting it on the federal level and fighting it in the states and fighting it in the courts. Uh, You all have met uh, and come alongside people that are impacted by this issue. So yes, you might have a bump in a row just because of this new administration, uh, but I truly believe, one, that the law is on the side. Medicaid, was created specifically to help the most vulnerable. And so this goes against the, you know, what, it was, what it was for. Um, and I believe that you know, we're, the, the cause of justice will always prevail.
0: Thank you, Jennifer, for helping people understand what's inside the Overton window.
1: Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about the Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.